0: Welcome to the Refuge Weekly Podcast. We are a church in and for the City of Orange in Southern California. The heart of Refuge OC is to introduce and reintroduce people to a clearer vision of God. To learn more about us and how you can get involved, please visit us at refugeoc.com. And now, here is our latest message. If you have a Bible, I want you to grab it. So I want you to make sure you have a, a, some kind of scripture form with you, whether it's an actual book that has pages. We talk about this all the time. You even have, there are cool Bible apps out there that can help you turn to scripture. And then also ways for you to connect online with us. We'll even have it on our screens behind or even on the screen that you're watching from. So scripture is where we're at today. We are heading to the second Book of the Bible, all the way back to the beginning, a place called Exodus. Last week we were in Genesis land. Today we are in Exodus. So it's going to be fun to travel along into today's story. But before I go there, and as you're turning to Exodus, um, I want to kind of like preface with some stories and some thoughts that I've been having um, as we kind of get ready for the sermon. I don't know about you, sometimes I spend my free moments just kind of flipping through news stories, and I saw this news story because in about 30 minutes from right now, there's going to be the racing of the Indianapolis 500. Do you know this? This is like a car race. People are super excited about it, but it normally happens in May around Memorial Day, but this week or this year, it obviously got pushed like so many sporting events to a delayed start time, and today there is going to be this race but there are no fans, and it's going to look weird. It's going to be watching like the Angels games or the Dodgers games, and there are no fans in the audience. There's no fans to watch this car race. You'll still be able to watch it on, on TV, and sometimes watching it on TV is better because you get all the cool angles. You hear the backstories and all the cars, but sometimes there's just something about being there. And I read the story about a guy who this year would have been his 40th time going to the Indianapolis 500 and he didn't want to miss it. He's been for 39 straight years, and he wants to go his 40th time. Coronavirus happens. He can't go because there's no fans, but then he begins to look at the map, the Google Maps of the Annapolis Speedway, and he notices that there's this tree on the other side of the fence that is right there, and he's like, I wonder if I can get to that tree, and so he goes, and he actually, he doesn't even live in Indianapolis. He goes and And flies there, gets there, goes and finds where this tree is at. It's at this homeowner's house on the backside of the speedway. And the tree is tall enough that from its perch you can see the speedway. And so he has this brilliant idea weeks ago. And so he goes to the owner of the house. Pleads his case, pays the owner some money, and says, "Can I build a perch in your tree so I can watch the Indianapolis 500 live? I just want to watch it live. It'll be 40 times." And I'm thinking, that sounds like a story from Scripture about a wee little guy who couldn't see wants to go see Jesus. Kids, if you're watching, who am I talking about? Right, starts with a Z. Huh? I I, I haven't heard what you said. Who? Zacchaeus. That's right. Some of you said Zacchaeus. That's exactly it. It sounds like the story of Zacchaeus that goes to endless lengths to get something done. So I'm not sure what this guy's viewing is going to look like today. I'm sure there's some stories that will happen more about what he experienced watching the Indianapolis 500 but there's these stories that we come across like that sounds like a story from the Bible and you're like yes that's exactly it and you think about the stories of the Bible that are amazing and huge and big we call them meta narratives right they're really big stories that really are are, are gargantuan what are some of the favorite stories that you have? And I, even, I would even encourage you, jot them right now in the comments, whether you're watching on YouTube or Facebook. What are the big stories of the Bible that you love? You love the story of David and Goliath. Maybe you love the creation story. You get the stories of Adam and Eve. You love some of the New Testament um, the characters. You get Peter, Paul, and Mary, right? Like those stories. And, and others, obviously there's Jesus. Like let's throw Jesus into the into the mix. You get, you get some of his disciples that make really stupid mistakes and say dumb things, and you're like, I love those stories because it makes me feel human. But then you go back to the Old Testament, and there are these amazing stories about people. You got like Samuel, and you got Saul. You got David, like the David and Goliath thing that I mentioned earlier. You got other big stories out there. But do you remember the story in the Old Testament about Shipra and Puah? I'm telling you, this is a huge story. These are two women They get named in the book of Exodus. And why are they important? Well, first off, we know they're important because they get named. There are many characters in the story that we're about to read together from Exodus chapter 1 into Exodus chapter 2. So many people don't get named. But for whatever reason, Shipra and Pua get named. So perhaps you're out there and you're thinking, maybe one day I want to have kids, and you need more names to be added to the list. Today is your day. Consider Shipra and Pua. And I know what you're thinking, hold on, Brenton, I'm not going to believe what you're going to say until I hear about their story. Well, let's go there together. Exodus chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 8. If you remember our story last week, we got to the story of Joseph, right? When Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, this is in the book of Genesis, When he reveals himself to his brothers, he recognizes, hey, God had sent me ahead of you. He's the one who kind of saved me. Even though you sold me into slavery and you wanted me dead, you wanted me out of your family. And many years later, his brothers come groveling to him because Joseph has come to and risen to some prominent, important place in Egyptian culture and government. And they had to grovel before him, not knowing it was their brother And we get to the story like, oh, everything's great, because Joseph then says, hey, brothers, you should come live in Egypt because everything's great here. There's going to be famine. And so the entire family comes, and these are the beginnings of the Israelites. These are God's people, the Hebrew people. And so they get to Egypt at the end of Genesis. And then something happens when we get to Exodus, and it changes. So let's read together, starting in verse 8 of Exodus 8 one. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Joseph doesn't mean anything. He came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. That's what the The king is worried about. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt, verse 15 says, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, observe them on the delivery stool. And if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God, and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives... Feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Sounds like an interesting story. Not necessarily warm and fuzzy yet. But we continue reading into chapter 2. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, like you do. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her female slaves to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, 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 go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Hmm, a little trickery there. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby, nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby, the woman took the baby, nursed him. When the child grew older, she, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water, which is what his name means. I love this story because Exodus has a really, really important kind of transformational moment in my life, because back as a 18-year-old college student, I remember going to an Old Testament class for the very first time, and I hadn't really given the Old Testament a fair shake, and I'll tell you how, because I knew the stories. I knew the stories growing up in a pastor's home. Like We, we, we sang the songs. I knew about David and Goliath. I knew about Noah and the ark, and I knew about all this stuff. I didn't know how it fit together, but I remember my Old Testament professor saying to me, Exodus is actually the story of the entire Old Testament that gives us a glimpse into the character of who God is. Genesis, while while being that really good foundational starting place and helps us understand how things began, it's actually Exodus that gives us what God is like. It's the picture of God in his beauty and in his grandeur and in his amazingness and how he deals with his people. Exodus... Is where it's at. And so when we consider this story, you're like, oh man, what's happening? I also love the story because I have a friend named Joseph who lives in Iowa. And this week, his wife delivered a, a new baby boy and they named him Moses. Like, I just texted him. I'm like, how cool is that? Joseph from the book of Genesis has a boy and names him Moses. Like, I love how even their family connects with this story because, like, every good story that you watch, you read about, you hear about, You want to hear the hook, right? Every movie that you go to, every movie that you, I know, movie, go to, that's, I'm sorry. I said it out loud. We don't go to movies right now. It's okay. But when we watch movies, you know how it works, right? We introduce ourselves to some characters and then the character goes into a bad time and then they got to figure out for the rest of the story how to get out of the bad time. That's like the narrative plot of most stories. That's how most movie makers make their stories because they know if I can explain to you how a character is, put them up a tree, which is a bad place, and i got to figure out how to get him out of a tree. That's like the resolution of the story that we're going with. But for this, this story for us is all of Book of Genesis, we're introduced to the characters, and then eventually we get to the start of Exodus, and the Israelites are in a kingdom with a king, a pharaoh, who does not remember the stories from the past. Most scholars would say, well, Joseph from the book of Genesis came to power when there were some Egyptian kings and pharaohs that came from the outside. They weren't naturally Egyptian. There's actually a dynasty of of Egyptian pharaohs that weren't native, and they became rulers over the country, and the people who were there hated it. And they say, that's probably the time period where Joseph came to power for Pharaoh. And so you can imagine decades and centuries later when there came a king from within he wanted to kind of eradicate the stories of the past and what you find pharaoh doing in these first few verses of the passage that we have for us today is he's just basically doing propaganda and we've seen this happen in other time periods probably the easiest one for those of you who who've been doing your history reading you remember the time period of world war ii where the nazis were really really good at using propaganda to their advantage, because if they could tell a story about how people were evil, they could get rid of them. And that's what they did in World War II, and this is exactly what Pharaoh is doing here. If he could tell a story about these Israelites who are all around them, and if he could do something to get rid of them, he would. And so the Pharaoh and the leadership here embarks in a threefold plan. And it's not like a plan that happens over a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Most scholars would say that from verse 8, Up until 12 or even following in this first chapter of Exodus, it's many years down the road. And the first thing Pharaoh does is, hey, I'm I'm going to make them slaves. Because if I can oppress people, they will die off, right? They're concerned about the number of people that are there. And Pharaoh's like, I want to get rid of them. And so he's like, we're going to make them slaves. They're going to build cities for us. They're going to do things. If you watch the Charlton Heston movie, you know what this looked like, right? Or even the Prince of Egypt movie, you know what this looks like. It's slavery. It's oppression. It's bad. But interestingly enough, the harder they oppressed, the Hebrew people continued to grow in multitudes. So, phase two of the plan is, well, let me talk to the midwives. Let me talk to Shipra and Pua. Are these the only midwives out there? Probably not. But these are the two that get named. Probably like leaders of the midwives or the ones who were in charge. And so Hebrew, uh, uh, Pharaoh excuse me, Pharaoh gives an order, not to them directly, probably just through his officials. says, hey, tell all the Hebrew midwives that when you are helping an Israelite give birth, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. You're trying to figure out how does that transaction go down in the delivery room or whatever the delivery room looked like back then. And his assumption was, well, any order that I give is is naturally followed. So they're going to do it, right? And so for months and months and probably even years, most scholars would assume that Pharaoh wasn't even aware that his policy wasn't being followed. Because it doesn't take a lot of time to figure out, like, well, eventually there's going to be some boys running around. And they're like, wait a second, didn't we give a rule that all the Hebrew boys are supposed to be out of here? And Pharaoh finally calls Shipra and Pua to his palace and says to them, why have you done this? Why have you disobeyed me? And they have this answer, which sounds like a lie. They're like, well, you know, the Hebrew women are way different than the Egyptians. They don't even wait for the midwives to show up. Part of me is like, interestingly, is God interested in us doing little little lies like this? It's actually probably not a lie. They probably told the truth. But they also, also were into their own way of disseminating information to all of the Hebrew people around. Because you know those midwives were like, all right, here's the deal. Pharaoh told us that we're supposed to kill the boys. So here's the deal. All you ladies who are pregnant, like they probably got them all together. Hey, go ahead and give birth and do it before we show up. Because the Hebrew people, the Israelites, probably were lower-class citizens, right? They're slaves. They're taking care of their own. But for a person like Pharaoh and, the, and the, the royal family, they needed midwives there the whole time. But the midwives for the Israelites probably did show up after the birth. And if they showed up after the birth, they're like, you know what? They turned a blind eye to the moment. So they're not lying to Pharaoh. They're just saying, we don't want to show up. And so they told all the Hebrew women... When you're pregnant, make sure you give birth. Have your sister, have your aunt, have your mom, have your grandma come and help. And when we show up and the, the deliveries already happen, we can, with good confidence, say to Pharaoh, Hebrew women are different. They give birth way quicker than the Egyptian women. It's not a physiological thing. There's nothing different about the, the makeup of their bodies versus the Egyptian bodies. It's just that they also had a plan to make sure that these boys weren't killed. So Pharaoh's ticked off, and he wants to change the storyline. He's like, I'm going to get my people dead if I, if I have to just do something about it. I'm going to kill these boys because I can't handle the growth of the, these Israelites. And finally, he gives an order to all the Egyptian people. Hey, if you see a boy, kill him. Throw him into the Nile. Why the Nile? Well, the Nile is that major river, right, that goes through Egypt. We've all heard about it. If You haven't Heard about it? You're just in denial. All right, dad joke. Just wanted to throw that one in there for free. You can use that later. It's free of charge. Okay, the Nile is this major river that goes through Egypt. It is the source of life. Everything that comes from it is their way of life. And for the Egyptians, they even thought of the Nile River in godlike fashion. And they assumed that even if they threw babies to the river, then the river who is godlike would make the determination if that baby lived or died. And the culpability or or the responsibility of the person who threw the baby in would be nothing. Because it was, you know, it was the god, the river that did it. Try to use that in your defense. Well, what happened to the boy? The river did it. It doesn't sound clear, but that's exactly what they believed. And they said, hey, if I throw the baby in, then the, the river can take care of all my problems. I can... I can be in good graces with Pharaoh, who came up with this thing. And the attempt is we're going to get rid of all these boys. But the story thickens, the plot thickens as we continue to read into chapter 2. And we get the story about a Levite man and a Levite woman. Because as the story gets told, it's the tribe of Levi in the entire Old Testament. It becomes like the priestly tribe. They're the ones who lead the people into worship. And this is the tribe that Moses comes from. But Moses, when he is born to his parents, know full well the order out there. If anybody catches that they have a newborn boy, they can throw this boy into the river. And the mom is like, no, like every mom out there. Have you ever met a newborn mom who's like, yeah, I just don't want this kid, right? Like they they want to be around them. I just was, it's just, it's what you do when you have newborn kids. You want to be around them. And the mom was like, I want to keep this. I'm going to do everything I can. And so what she probably did was go into kind of the fashion where she made this, little basket, right, out of the papyrus, which was readily available right at the Nile River, used the tar and pitch, which was probably like tree sap and some salt and some other ingredients that kind of coated it, gave it waterproof like material, so that when she put Moses in it, he was safe. And she may not have just like immediately put Moses in and let him drift down the river, probably kept him there for some time. But knowing full well there's going to come a day where she can't keep him nearby because if anybody finds out that she's got a boy, they're going to take him, throw him into the river, and he's done. But she puts him in this basket. And what's interesting is the word for the basket here in Exodus chapter 2 is actually the word ark. For those of you who remember the story of Noah and his ark from the early chapters of Genesis, it's this ark that preserved the people for something to come. And it's this ark that Moses gets put in that preserves his life for something to come. And so God's in the business of protecting and guiding his people for something that's coming, right? And this is what we get from this story. But as we understand how it happened, when his basket, his ark is found by Pharaoh's daughter, she pulls it from the river, notices it, and she immediately has compassion upon him. And she notices that he's crying, wants to figure out a way. How can we make this baby survive? She knows full well what her dad has said all Hebrew boys need to be killed. And she's his daughter. And if you've got a daughter like this, I bet you probably have a daughter that may even not listen to you all the time, like this daughter of Pharaoh. And she's like, I'm not listening to dad. I'm keeping this boy, I'm going to do whatever I can. And so, rightly so, Moses' sister, who's hanging out in the distance, hears that Pharaoh's daughter wants to keep this baby boy, which is the sister's brother, runs in and says, hey, do you need me to find a mother who can be a wet nurse for this time? Which will basically mean for three years, just help Moses survive. And she's like, yes, let's take that. And so, what in an interestingly turn of events, Moses' mom, who thought she was going to lose him, was actually able to keep him and was paid to be his mom. And three years later, she takes him back to the palace, gives him to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter says, I'm going to name him Moses because out of water I drew him. This is the story that we get. Why does he get named three years later? Because in that culture, you didn't name kids right away. You probably didn't even talk as parents ahead of time because you allowed the events of the day to help name this boy or this girl. And so for Moses' parents, they wanted to figure out, or for Moses, who was now in the charge of Pharaoh's daughter, she was going to name him because of the moment of drawing him out of the water from this ark that God had saved him from destruction, which is what God is in the business of doing. Okay, here's the thought. How do we step into our current world while at the same time trying to step into the history of the story that we've just read? Because otherwise, it's just a fun story. And if you've got kids who are watching with you, you're like, yeah, 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 I love the story of Moses. I love where he's drawn out of the water. I love what's about to happen. And if we get there in the next few weeks with the lectionary readings here at Refuge, we'll find out what Moses does. But it doesn't take many of us to have to go look far, even do Google searches. You know Moses is one of the most famous people in Scripture. He's the guy who delivers the Hebrews, the Israelites, from the grip of slavery. It has been 400 years until we get to the story of Moses, since the story of Joseph, right? There's centuries that have passed, and then God finally sends a deliverer. So I love the elements of the story. I love how God uses people like Shipra and Pua, who are going to fly in the face of the orders of the day and are not going to agree with the king, and they're going to keep boys alive. It's important that Shipra and Pua get named, Because we also notice who doesn't get named. We don't get the name of Pharaoh. We don't get the name of his daughter. We don't get the name of a bunch of the Hebrew and Israelite leaders. But we get the name of them. Because they were faithful to what God had called them to do. They knew full well that they shouldn't agree with the king's orders. And they're going to let boys live. And a boy lived named Moses who was going to change everything. But it's kind of like watching a movie that you already know the ending of. You're like, yeah, 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 we get, we get Moses. We know what he's about to go do. He's going to lead them out of Egypt. They're going to cross the Red Sea. They're going to get to the, to the desert. They're going to wander for 40 years. And eventually, they're going to go into the promised land. And it's going to be amazing. But what do you do with the story where God says, hey, I'm going to send someone to deliver you. But I'm going to send him in the form of a baby. And don't worry, this baby who's born is going to deliver you, but he's only going to deliver you 80 years from now. Right? Sounds weird because for the first 40 years, roughly, of Moses' life, he lives in the palace of Pharaoh. That's the world he grows up in. At around age 40, he comes to grip with his, his identity as a Hebrew and he recognizes this is not who he is, so he leaves town. And for 40 years, he himself wanders in the desert, comes to grip with who he is, and God calls him to go back and rescue. So God doesn't send Moses to go rescue the people until he's 80 years old. So what good is it to hear a story about a baby who's going to deliver you and say, don't worry, in 80 years it's going to be great. This is the hard part of the stories that we get with scripture sometimes. You're like, how do I translate this to my life? Because in my life, there are moments for me that I really want deliverance now. I want God to do something now. I don't know if you've been in that. I don't know if you've had the story, you're like, God, I need you to show up this week because it's bad and the list of bad can be huge. And every single one of us have different stories. And if we would let our stories be known and if we would talk to one another and share them, we would probably have a lot more kindness than the world seems to be exhibiting right now. We just get, seem to be mad at each other for all kinds of reasons. And even the madness of the world right now is one of those things where you're like, God, can you please deliver us from this? And for some of us, it may be like, God, can you please deliver me of coronavirus in this time period that we're in because I want to go to a movie theater? I want to go to a restaurant inside where they have air conditioning, right? These seem like really base level things, but I've complained about it. And you're like, yeah, me too. I know. I've heard you. I'm just kidding. But for so many of us, there are big things that we're facing. And we want God's deliverance now. And all I can say when I come across a story like this is because it's, it's nothing new for God. His stories of deliverance happen over and over and over again. But when I'm in the midst of my own issues and my thing or my... uh, The thing that is plaguing me... mm, Interesting word to be thinking about, Exodus. The thing that is plaguing me. I can live for today because I know about the future. And that's the difference that for those of us who would say... I want to turn my life in the direction of where God is leading. Because no longer do I just get to sit in my stuff and say it's always going to be this way. But the projection of the future says, I know it's this way right now, but there is a God in heaven who knows me. He knows this world. He put it into action, and he's in the business of delivering his people yet again. Sometimes God sends deliverance right away. Sometimes it doesn't happen for 80 years or 400 years or for much longer? What do you do with stories where people have hoped and prayed that God would do something and he didn't? You are sustained by stories of when God showed up and he did it, whether it's stories from scripture or it's stories from people around you. I sat with someone on Friday with, for coffee And she told of a story about an abusive relationship she was in, and it actually was an abusive moment that she was in, and she was about to just shut down because she couldn't take the verbal and physical abuse that that was being projected upon her by her spouse. And she had this premonition that just came to her mind, and I wanna say it's the Holy Spirit, who said, get up, go find your phone, and call 911. In this moment, she's like, ah, he's gonna find me, I can't get to my phone. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit helped that moment to where she could get to the phone, call 911, and she got help. Because there's these moments where God delivers us in the moment. Then there are the moments where he doesn't. And you're like, what do I do with that? Does that mean God loves them more? No. It just means God is up to something. God is in the businesses of us to be sustained by the stories of hope for our futures because we know that God is in the business of deliverance if he does it way back in Scripture history with a boy named Moses who should have been killed, we know for a fact that he's going to do it for us. Maybe my deliverance from the things that I'm facing is going to come 80 years from now. And if I just do a quick version of math, it doesn't look good for me if my deliverance comes in 80 years because I'm not sure I'll be alive. But I also want to say that in the midst of my life here and now, I have hope for today because I know how God works. I know how he is projected. The things I am facing are not new to him. They do not surprise him. He is not caught off guard. But what he's in the business of doing and saying over and over and over again is I want to be your deliverer. Let me deliver you from what you are facing today. So I'm not sure what you're facing. I'm not sure what's going on in your life and your heart this week. And it might be new from whatever last week was and into this week. But I do know that there is confidence in trusting in the one who delivers his people over and over and over again. It's why we read this book. It's why we care about delivering the church box to your home. Because the story, the story of scripture is all about us understanding how God put things together. And I'm telling you, my Old Testament professor when I was 19 years old wasn't wrong. The story of Exodus is it. Because the story of Exodus gives us the prelude to understand the Jesus story. Because if Jesus is sent centuries and millennium later, we understand how God is. He will deliver his people yet again. And yes, it's 2020. And yes, things are bad. And yes, people don't get along. And yes, there's coronavirus. And yes, there's death. And yes, there's cancer. And yes, there's divorce. And yes, there's all kinds of things. But I have confidence for today because I know how God works. Let's look for Him today. Pray with me. Lord, would you continue to guide us well into the days ahead, knowing that even though there are things before us, on our path that will trip us up, that will cause us to wonder, are you around? Are you alive? Are you sleeping? It is stories like Exodus and stories about Shipra and Puah and Moses that help us get That God is in the business of deliverance. We want to see these stories this week. For those who are hurting, would you be with them? Because your presence is what takes away our pain. It's what takes away our fears. It's what gives us hope for today and tomorrow and all the tomorrows that follow. Help us, God, to have the faith of Shipra and Pua. Because of what you are up to and the deliverance you are bringing even today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. We believe in community and would love to connect with you. If you have any questions or would like to speak to a pastor, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at refugechurchoc. We hope to see you again soon.